And if you have a Bible, it would be amazing if you'd um, find a way to turn to two places at the same time. We're going to uh, study, in, as we've been doing, in the book of Ephesians and chapter 2. Um, and uh, we're also going to go to Acts chapter 19 because I want you to understand the context to the book of Ephesians and why we're doing what we're doing and what's going on in this world. Because it's easy to think that our world is incredibly chaotic and very complex and it's never been a place like this before. And how in the world is God going to move? And how can the people of God make any kind of difference until you understand that the world the Bible is written in is just as chaotic, in fact at times more chaotic, and, uh, and somehow... God's truth and justice and righteousness uh, prevails in that culture. Um, and so it's really important that we understand. Acts 19, Ephesians chapter 2. You know, whenever I say anything that it could even be remotely uh, seen as political from, uh, from a church platform, I have a, a ringing voice in my head. Um, when I first started in ministry, there was a guy called Brian who attended every Sunday church in Leeds. He was always drunk. He always staggered down the middle aisle. He nearly always kneeled at the front and genuflected and said, I'm here, Father. And then everyone else had to continue the rest of the stuff. But here's the thing. Every single time I said anything that could even be suggestively political or, or a comment on the state of our world, he would stand up and say, well, I have no politics here. You know, in, in, and I just have this ringing thing in my head whenever I say anything of Brian. And, uh, but, he, but here's the truth. The truth is church is political. We're political. By which I mean we're supposed to be a disturbance. We're supposed to make a difference. We're supposed to have opinions. We're supposed to speak out when we see things that are wrong. We're supposed to act in a way that is actually offensive to many of the systems and patterns of our world. There is always going to be a disturbance if we're being the people of God. And sometimes it's not very attractive and sometimes it feels very awkward. But there's always going to be not only revival but riots when the people of God are actually doing what the people of God should do. And so often, because we don't like the disturbance stuff, we think that loving Edinburgh needs to look like everyone likes us. And we fit in really well. And it suits our cultural norm, doesn't it? I was fascinated when we were, um, when we were encouraged by Hannah to stand up on our chairs and, 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 and create a riot for Hazel. We, we sang very, very politely, happy birthday, and then we clapped like this. And, and that's just the way we, I mean, I'm not, that's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way, we, the way we are. So when it comes to thinking about what the disturbance in the force that the kingdom of God makes when it comes in power, that's quite awkward for us, isn't it? But when the kingdom of God comes, nothing can be the same again. When the spirit of God in power collides with the word of God preached and lived powerfully, then there's going to be something that changes. And it's not always going to suit us when that change occurs. So what I want to do today is uh, I want to try, and this is complex and I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I want to try and make some sense of some of the stuff that's going on in our world and why it's really difficult for us to make a difference. And why it's really difficult for us to even live the Christian life. 
And why we take two steps forward and two steps back and sometimes following Jesus feels like shoveling snow in a blizzard. You know, we're getting somewhere and then we're getting nowhere and then it overwhelms us. And then some, some years we seem to be doing better than others and then something hits us and we don't quite know how to handle that stuff. And what, is, what does it look like? What is, what is going on in our world? And so Acts chapter 19, I'm just going to read a few verses and I'm going to give you heads up. But where we want to, um, we want to land is Ephesians chapter 2. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. That's the road through the interior. <laughs> what was doing? <laughs> and arrived at Ephesus. <laughs> There he found some disciples. I love this. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, nope. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I'm sure. Don't make any comments, Carl. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And then, so, so effectively what we're being told is, is that people begun to intellectually believe in Jesus because of a message they've heard, but they've not encountered Jesus, so it's not begun to change their, their lives. It's like they did the Alpha course, but they had something on on the Holy Spirit weekend. So they understood some new stuff about God, and they began to be convinced about it, but they hadn't had the person of God, the God at hand, invade their lives to the extent that everything around them transformed. So they kind of had started off in the Christian life, but it hadn't gone anywhere because the life of God was not in them. And then when they receive the life of God, the Holy Spirit, something happens that always happens. And then when we read the rest of the passage, what we, be, what we begin to see is that Paul begins to speak with power, and that power is both received and rejected. The Paul begins to reason for two years. Uh, he, he reasons and he argues and he discusses every single day in a hall called Tyrannus. And then incredible miracles happen because when God moves in power, the stuff of God happens around us. This is not kind of super normal. This is normal. This is what should happen when the Spirit of God is at work amongst us, we're supposed to see remarkable things happen. We're supposed to hear remarkable things spoken. And there's supposed to be transformation all around us. That's, this is the normal stuff. Where do, where do we make it subnormal, abnormal, supernormal? This is just, this is what should happen. Revivals and riots. And so there's problems. Of course there's problems because as soon as the Spirit of God begins to, to move in this context, people start to change their behaviors. And when people start to change their behaviors and behave in a different way, what happens is that the whole economy of the city gets transformed and people start to, 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 to lose customers and lose their jobs. It's going to happen. 
And so a guy called Demetrius, who's a silver worker who makes idols for the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, which was in Ephesus. He, make, he makes all these idols. Suddenly he starts losing work because people start following Jesus and not Artemis, and they're not buying idols anymore. Of course, he's hacked off. And so he starts a riot. That's what's supposed to happen. If you haven't got transformation and troubles happening around you, be suspicious that you might not be as full of the Spirit as he wants you to be. Things are supposed to be happening. It's not always supposed to be easy. Stuff will be opposed around you. And so my question is, what, what is going on? What is going on in Ephesus and what is going on in Edinburgh? Why is there such a disturbance in the force? What is going on when the kingdom of God comes? And we begin to declare that there is a king above every other king and there is a kingdom that is totally other. And the way we declare it and the way we live it becomes offensive. What is going on when we do that? What is going on in, 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 the, in the force systems of our world that means that this is disturbing and that this is opposed for us? Why do we find it difficult? And I'd love you to look at Ephesians chapter 2 because I think that the Apostle Paul writes this to explain that. I want, I want you to understand what's going on so you can posture yourself correctly. I want you to understand why you find this difficult. I want you to understand why you'll have, whilst you'll have revival, you'll also have riots. I want you to understand that this thing isn't supposed to be nice and cozy. I want you to understand that you're not supposed to hide away. I want you to understand why it is opposed. And I want you to understand how you can stand. I want you to understand why your behavior modification is not working for you. I want you to understand that, that you can't do the Christian life like this. You're always going to fall and fail. I want you to get what's going on in, in the heavenlies. And so he writes to the church in Ephesus, which is going to become, like it's, it's, it's one of the best models of church that we've got. It's, it's, it's planted in miracles and transformation and difficulty and troubles. Paul obviously loves this church, I think probably more than he loves any other church. He stays there and he teaches them every single day everything that he's got. He sees incredible revival happen. He plants churches from this place. It's almost like a school of ministry in, in Ephesus. This stuff is birthing and, and, and growing. And he writes this stuff to them. And he says in Ephesians chapter 1, guys, remember this. Your identity, who you are, has nothing to do with what you know. It has nothing to do with where you learnt it. 
It really doesn't have anything to do with what you earn or what job you do or what gender you are or how you define yourself as far as sexuality is concerned. Your primary identity does not have anything to do with that. Your primary identity has to do with who the Father says you are because he created you and you're a creation and you're made by him and you're made for him. And when you understand that he as a father is the perfection of fatherhood, he's, he's perfect coverage, he's perfect provision, he's perfect protection, he perfectly provokes you, and you understand that your primary identity is that you're a child of God, that begins to free you to under, not just understand who you are, but live as who you are. And then he starts to unveil the story in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, I want you to know what's going on. Because if you don't know what's going on, you will not be able to stand in this thing and you definitely won't grow in this thing. I want to let you in on the secret because there's something going on that unless you think about it, you don't know it's going on and it will kill you not to know what's going on. There is something going on in, underneath and below the geopolitical systems that are going on in our world right now that if we don't understand that, we just get totally frustrated and we get mired in all the wrong conversations. There is something going on. And he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And I think Paul is saying you need to understand the story under the story. You need to understand the story behind the story. And he said, there's something going on that if you don't get this thing, you're always going to be confused. There is someone called the prince of this world or the prince of the power of the air, which sounds incredibly medieval. Actually, it's pre-medieval because Paul is, is writing this pre-medieval. But, but, but it makes sense if you pause for a moment. It makes sense of our experience of this life that we live a life and in a world that is opposed. We live a life and in a world that there, where there is conflict. Where there is light, there must be dark. And, and we know dark, because we've seen it. Where there is good, there must be evil. And we could articulate if we wanted to what we think evil looks like because we've been there. We've seen that stuff. For you to choose good and choose right there must be an opportunity to choose bad or wrong, or it's not a choice. 
And so Paul says, there is one called the prince of the power of the air who is named in a number of other places in the scriptures with a number of other titles which are important to recognize. He's called the destroyer in Revelation. He's called the liar in John 8, 44. He's called the enemy in Matthew. He's called the evil one in Matthew 13. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3. However you identify him or call him, the enemy wants to stop above anything else your life in God and the life of God coming out of you and through you to people around you. Because if that happens, he's lost. And he's really smart. He's smart, so he's not going to show up in your life in direct and despicable demonstrations of his ambition. Because then you'd know what was going on because you know what bad looks like. You know what evil looks like and you know what dark looks like. And you're going to call it for what it is and you're not going to walk with it. So he's not going to do that. No, no, he's going to manifest himself in subtle distortions and philosophies that seem good to you but are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. And they're designed to stop you and everyone around you living the deep life of God. They're designed to stop you and everyone around you living love and living life and living grace and living truth. They're designed to stop people and uh, all the people around you living in harmony with one another because he's a divider and a destroyer. He knows he can't destroy you, but he can distract you and he will dilute you. So he sows into culture, uh, shapes and f uh, he shapes and he frames the narrative of our age, the way of this world, and therefore he shapes the behavior of our lives because the behaviors of our lives flow out of the things that we think, our beliefs and our values. Does that make sense? And so what he does, he says, well, these things are reasonable to think. Consumerism, for example. It doesn't seem unreasonable, but when you drill it down, the whole point of it is getting more stuff and consuming more stuff, not participating in more stuff, just consuming more stuff. And, and, and the irony is that those of us who've lived long enough, and there are some of us who pretend we're younger than we are, but those of us who've lived long enough know that, that it doesn't actually fulfill what we think it's going to fulfill, it actually does the reverse. You think you've got more, you think you're full, but you want more. It's like, it's like trying, to, trying to satisfy your thirst with salt water. And then you want secularism. There, are, there is no God and there are no fairies. In other, words, in other words, what you see is what you get. The only things that are real are things that you can touch, and there's, there's, there's no world behind a world. There's no story behind a story. We, we, are, we are the best we get. And, and when you die, you die. Ironically, when you believe this, you do die. Pluralism is probably in the same family of thoughts. Everything is God, nothing is God. And if everything is God, nothing can be God. Progressivism. I mean, they don't, they don't seem bad things, do they? Progressivism. If we keep moving forward, if we keep getting better, if we keep inventing more stuff, if we, if we get rid of the right combination of plastics or if we deal with the right mental health, if we, do, if, we, if we keep pushing forward, we will make our way towards some kind of utopia which is going to solve some things. And the reality, of course, is that 50% of that's true. 
We have to do those things, but, but if we're banking our life on us, the human race, getting better, actually the irony is that the evil stuff and the bad stuff gets progressively worse as well. We're never going to get to that point when suddenly we've solved all the problems of our world. Because decades and decades and generations of us have proved that that doesn't happen. Cynicism, he says, being cynical. Nothing can be trusted. And nobody can be trusted. Everyone, the belief that everyone's actually ultimately in it for their own gain. The, and, and of course, once again, we have lived long enough to know that most of that's true. But, but if we hold on to that and build on that, nothing is really beauty. Because behind every beauty there's ugly. And it stops us building the kind of community of trust. Individualism. Ultimately, if there's no God and there's no definitive truth, then it's all about me. And I have to fix it and I have to sort it. And, and, and the reality is, although that's something that drives most of us, we know how totally deficient that is because we live with us. And we know that there comes a moment, many, many, many moments, when we can't fix it, we can't solve it, we can't pay for it, we can't deal with it. And all we're left with is somehow to self-medicate it with whatever drug that we've chosen. And, and all these things and many others, I believe the enemy has sown, the prince of the power of this world has sown into our culture. They're not bad and they seem reasonable but it's been sown in our culture to have us believing and valuing things that keep us from the deep things of God. He can't destroy you, but he can distract your energy, dilute your impact, and deflate your identity. He can't destroy you because Christ has saved you, but he can limit you and lessen you. And here's the thing I wanted to say. It's taken me 25 minutes to get here. Here's the thing I wanted to say. Nearly all of us struggle with this stuff because we attempt to fight the Christian life and live the Christian life on the level of behaviors. Hope this is making sense. You know, if, if, if I can be less judgy this month, if I could be less greedy, if I could just stop watching that thing late at night, if I could, whatever my particular thing is, if I can just force myself into holiness, holiness, I'm going to make holiness happen. I'm going to be read my Bible. I'm going to pray every day and I'm going to stop getting so angry with the kids and I'm going to be more present when I get home from work and, 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 and somehow I'm going to do transformation and the transformation I do is going to be the transformation that gets done through me. And, and, and the reality is... It's like two steps forward, three steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. And the truth is we're losing the war because we're engaging the war on the wrong level. Paul says, I want you to get it. Because I want you to get it because here's the truth. The Heavenly Father says, what you need to know is I'm also sowing into this world ways of thinking and deep values called the kingdom of God that are actually deeper and more powerful and more significant from those other values that have been sown in and are believed so liberally. And they have the power and the ability, if you let them, to drown out these other thoughts and change absolutely everything.
And so he writes, look, but God. But God. In other words, you were dead when you followed the ways of this world and you were caught in the flesh in these things, in these ways of thinking. That was destroying you. But God, because of his great love for us, that's his primary thing. That's his primary philosophy. That's his primary attitude. But God, because of his love. He, he, in other words, there is a God, so secularism is now out. There is a God, and he is love. He's not harsh, and he's not hateful, and he's not against you. His eye is on you. His hand is for you. He's got your back, and his love is, is, is his DNA, and his love is so great. It's great enough, if you let it, to not only drown out and counter these arguments and these isms, it, it actually helps you put them in perspective. Because they're not all bad. They're just bent out of shape in the economy of this world. But God... Because of his mercy. That's who he is and that's what he does. And that's, what, that's how he postures himself towards you. He is merciful. In other words, you don't get what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve. You, you, you have stepped out. You have transgressed. You, you live in a way that is inconsistent with the way that God made you to live. You live in a way that's inconsistent with his holiness. But he is towards you incredibly merciful. So rich is his mercy. It redeems all the broken things, all the busted things, all the broken political systems, all the broken people. He can, he, he's merciful. Merciful to Theresa May and Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, <laughs> or whoever is your non-merciful thought towards. He's merciful because of his, look, 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 look. don't miss this, because verse 5 of his grace which is the flip side of his mercy. If mercy is you don't get what you do deserve, grace is you get what you don't deserve. Does that make sense? Yeah. You get, what you, you get what you don't deserve. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. In other words, you can't achieve this life living on this level, trying to behave really well to get yourself in some kind of credit with God is never actually gonna work for you. It's never gonna help you. It's his grace. It's a gift. You can't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. And actually, the, the grace of God is such a powerful concept and such a powerful reality and such a powerful gift. It supersedes and undermines and subverts every other philosophy of this world if we let it. Make grace the mark. Make grace the metric may grace the way because of his kindness verse 7 I think we've made kindness such a weak word but I think in the economy of the kingdom of God it's one of the strongest words the attitude of God towards you is kind with his power and his grace and his mercy he's kind which means he speaks your language. It means he deals with you individually. It means he slows his pace so he can walk alongside you. It means he meets you in your deepest need. It means he doesn't condemn you when you deserve to be condemned because he's dreadfully kind towards you. And even in your inadequacies, in your inabilities and your dysfunctions, he's still there. He doesn't leave you because he's kind to you. What would it look like if instead of 
individualism, cynicism, and secularism, and what characterized the people of this nation and what characterized the people of this world was, was mercy and grace and love and kindness and forgiveness and patience. God, maybe I'm just being an old dreamer. But God has saved us. By his grace, is what the scripture says. And it's what you've experienced. He saved us from death. He saved us from a life lived outside of a relationship with him. He saved us from a life lived outside of his protection and his purpose and his provision. He saved us from the less and the limited and the limiting. He saved us from blind alleys and substitute fulfillments. He saved us for the power of his spirit and the declaration of his word, which always creates revival and riots. Grace instead of law is the kingdom of God. Mercy over just deserts is the kingdom of God. Forgiveness instead of revenge is the kingdom of God. Kindness. I struggled to work out what the opposite was. Kindness instead of competition, maybe. Something, something in me when <laughs> I read an article, I read a uh, headline today and said something about the toxic leadership contest. The word that freaked me out was not the word toxic or leadership, it was contest. And I, I, I understand, I, I get it. I totally get it. And I don't think you know, we're looking at a whole bunch of bad people, but kindness of God. These things, says Paul, get this, listen, listen. If these things fill your hearts and minds, if these things fill your hearts and minds, they propel you into living the kingdom. Humor me, back to Acts 19. What baptism did you receive? Oh, we receive the baptism of John for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, well, what you need to receive is the baptism of the Spirit. Because the baptism of the Spirit is the baptism of the life of God. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism of grace. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism of forgiveness. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism of mercy. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism of kindness. The baptism of the Spirit will transform everything in the world around you. Let's pray.
And so we pray, come Holy Spirit. Would you fill us with the life of God? And would you change our warring and our fighting for behavior modification? to a belief and a value in the things of grace and the things of mercy and the things of kindness. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you make a way where there isn't a way and where we've known about God but we've never truly known God. We ask that you'd fill us afresh with your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.